From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. In the heart of downtown Boston, the fascinating world of nature is often obscured by tall buildings, crowds of people, and honking horns. Inside the lab of Dr. Jeffrey Karp, researchers are looking to the world of nature to inspire new and exciting technologies that will push the field of medical science forward. Dr. Jeffrey Karp launched his lab in 2007 with the goal of using bio-inspiration, looking to systems that occur in nature organically to derive solutions to medical problems. In the work that his lab has done, they have examined porcupine quills to develop new needles, staples, and sutures. The sticky feet of the gecko lizard inspired a waterproof adhesive bandage that can seal holes in the heart. Even the spiny-headed worm, which lives inside the guts of fish, led his team to develop an adhesive device that can be used to adhere skin grafts and deliver drugs. Dr. Karp's work has also led to the creation of four companies and was selected by Popular Mechanics as one of the top 20 new biotech breakthroughs that will change medicine. Dr. Jeffrey Karp is an associate professor at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. He is principal faculty at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute and an affiliate faculty at the Broad Institute and at the Harvard-MIT Division of Health Sciences and Technology. Hello, Dr. Karp. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Can you tell us about your background, your training, um, how you came to this point? Sure. Uh, So I'm a chemical engineer by training. And and even to go one step back in in high school, my favorite subject was physics, although it was one of the most challenging for me. Um, I really liked biology as well. Uh, and I had no idea what engineering was in my high school. Um, no one, uh, you know, I, I don't remember having really any conversations with anybody about it. So I, I didn't know it was an option. So when I went to McGill University um, in 1994, I registered in the biology program. And then uh, about halfway through, I realized that um, that uh, I didn't want to spend my entire undergraduate um, focused on memorization, which is what a lot of biology is. I really enjoyed learning about biology, but I didn't want to focus on the memorization. So I transferred into chemical engineering, which I started in my second year, um, and I really look at a degree in engineering as a degree in problem solving. Um, so I was pretty excited about the skills that I was learning, um, how to take you know big problems and break them down into small pieces. Um, but then by the time I got to the end of my um, chemical engineering degree, I felt very limited because we were learning a lot about um, refrigerators and how they work and pulp and paper mills and, um, and uh, environmental waste management. Which which was was interesting, but not something that I was really excited enough or passionate enough to continue. And so, in my um, second to last year at McGill, I was in a coffee shop, um, one of these twenty four hour coffee shops where I typically would stay all all night. Uh, and I overheard some people I knew talking about um, bioengineering and tissue engineering and. Um, and, uh, I went over and asked them what they were studying. Um, and it was these two upper level courses. One, um, 
where you could take it in your final year of undergrad or you could take it as a grad student. So I went to the course director and I said, you know, can I register for these courses? Because I was pretty excited about them. I hadn't heard about them before. And he said, well, the only way you can get in is if you need three physiology prerequisites. So actually called my parents. It was the second time that I needed to make kind of the big call. First one was to transfer in engineering, just to kind of give them the heads up. And the second one was to tell them that I needed to take an extra year on my undergrad to, to take these courses. So um, they were fully supportive. So I, um, I stayed an extra year at McGill, took these three physiology prerequisites, and then I took these two courses. And that's what really changed everything for me. Um, and that got me really excited about the, the field of bioengineering. That's incredible. From one conversation in a coffee shop and then yeah. two classes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, it's kind of one of these recurring things that I found is that the, um, being actively opportunistic has really been, uh, an important, um, uh, thing to embrace. I've, I've realized that you never know when someone suggests, you know, to go for coffee or, you know, some sort of chance interaction can lead to, to a lot of, a lot of things. Um, which is pretty, pretty exciting. So then I went to, um, I graduated from McGill, uh, in 99 and I started my PhD at University of Toronto in the area of chemical engineering, biomedical engineering. Uh, and my focus was in the area of bone tissue engineering. It wasn't something that I was super passionate about, but I was really excited to work with, um, John Davies and Molly Shoikit, who are my two mentors, um, uh, supervisors for my PhD. Um, and, uh, you know, I really feel like, um, when you want to learn something new, one of the best things that one can do is submerse themselves in an environment where people are executing on something that you want to have, like, you know, some sort of skill. So there, the, um, John Davies, who was uh, my PhD advisor was an amazing storyteller, like could really take things that were super complex, like one of the best presenters I've ever met in all of academia. And um, he had skills that I wanted to have. And so I felt like being in his group would be a great way to, uh, to learn, you know, how to, how to tell stories and how to take concepts that were very complicated and convey them, communicate them in a very simple manner. Um, and, um, and Molly Shoikit um, was my other mentor um, who led a very large laboratory, one of the largest labs, I think, at, at University of Toronto, um, and was always just able to kind of keep at the fringe of the field. Um, and so I was really excited to be in her group. She focused a little bit more on nerve tissue engineering. So it was this nice kind of combination. John Davies was focused in bone engineering. So then after that, actually, I, I um, was still pretty excited about research when I got towards the end of my PhD. And I um, applied only to one lab for my postdoc, which was Bob Langer's lab at MIT. Um, and I sent him an email and I knew that, you know, I had to be really careful about how I constructed the email. So I spent a long time writing it and I ended up with the subject line was a postdoc candidate with big ideas with the word big in cap caps. Um, and then I told him about how there were a couple of problems that I wanted to solve and how I would go about solving them. Um, and so he wrote me back right away and he said that he said, you know, you have an impressive record, but I don't have any funding. Um, so then I wrote him back and I said, well, um, if I could get funding, would you um, offer me a spot in your lab? And he said, yes. 
So then I said, well, would you, would you include that in a letter, um, which I was going to uh, add to a fellowship application? So I applied for funding through the Canadian government, which provided two years of support, which I could bring with me to the U.S. Um, and then I attached a letter from Bob saying, if you give Jeff this um, fellowship or scholarship, that I will accept him in my lab. There wasn't really a place to to put that, but I just tacked it onto the end of the application. And I ended up getting, I, I got the, uh, the fellowship. And so then I got, ended up getting a position in his lab. So when I spent three years, um, at the Langer lab at MIT. Can you tell us about your research, your lab and the work you're doing? Sure. Um, so when I started my lab, um, back in July of 07, um, I had three main goals that I wanted to execute on. The first was to translate technology, so to not just um, conduct science and publish in journals, but to try to figure out a way so that we could um, maximize our impact. And by that, I mean, how can we focus on technologies that can solve problems, but in a way that we could accelerate the translation to uh, to the bedside, to helping patients. And um, I have started four companies thus far um, uh, as part of this translational effort, um, which has been you know extremely uh, challenging to navigate, I think as an academic or as a you know someone who's been trained in academia, um, the world of, of um, you know, the business world and the processes or methodologies to try to take technologies and bring them to the bedside um, requires completely different skill set, um, completely, uh, you know, lot, lots of uh, different types of expertise. And so I spent the last nine years plus um, trying to figure out uh, you know, who I need to talk to, who I need to align with, um, and the types of thinking that's required to, uh, to try to keep on this translational path. Um, and the second goal was to really look at my lab as a training ground. Um, this is where people come with incredible potential. And um, my role is to um, create an environment that is conducive to um, to the trainees, uh, uh, to, to unleash that potential and use the opportunity in the lab as a major stepping stone to the next thing that, that they're going to be doing. Um, and, uh, to date, um, I've had 18 people in the lab, um, over the past nine years who've trained, who are now faculty at, uh, institutions around the world, um, including in, uh, Korea, India, Singapore, Ireland, uh, and even the United States. And then the third goal was really um, based on this idea that I think in many ways when um, we approach science, we're very limited in the way that we think. Uh, and this has been negatively, um, you know, we've been in some ways, I think, negatively impacted by the, the education system where I think everybody is super creative when they're born, and by the time you get out of the education system, um, a lot of that creativity is gone. And I think that that negatively impacts our ability to solve problems uh, and really um, minimizes our ability to come up with new ideas. So um, one of the ways that we've tried to, to address this 
is to look at nature for inspiration. And so it's this idea that um, every creature, every living thing that exists today is here because it has overcome an insurmountable number of challenges uh, and those that um, haven't become extinct. So it's this idea that we're actually surrounded by solutions. And, um, and it's like this incredible encyclopedia of solutions that exist. And as our tools get better and better, you know, higher resolution and new tools come online, um, new chapters in this encyclopedia of solutions are continually written. Uh, and and I, I look at that as one, I think there's a lot of ways to, to bring in new ideas. And I really look as bioinspiration as a, as a tool um, to help us uh, think differently and, 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 and bring ideas to the forefront that we wouldn't have otherwise um, focused on. Can you talk a little more about the idea of bioinspiration? Bioinspiration is a tool that can be used to help solve almost any problem. Um, so the, for example, the high speed trains in Japan were inspired by the beaks of uh, kingfisher birds, um, because they, they're incredibly aerodynamic. Um, and so the train, the front part of the train is, is, is shaped somewhat like a kingfisher bird's beak. And so we've been using bioinspiration, uh, in particular to solve medical problems. So one example is, uh, a tissue glue that we were developing um, to try to seal holes inside a beating heart. And um, there were certain aspects of the design criteria that we put together for kind of like an ideal solution that we thought we had a good grasp on, but there were a couple things we didn't know what to do. And so we just asked a simple question of how does nature do it? What are there examples of creatures in nature that adhere to wet surfaces um, you know, under, let's say, dynamic conditions. And so we started looking at slugs and snails, which sometimes you'll see sitting on a leaf and it's raining and they're not moving, um, or sandcastle worms, which exist in the sea. And, you know, there's the surf that's there and they just stay put. And so having a problem that's well-defined and then looking for solutions in nature was one of the ways that, you know, uncovered some ideas that we wouldn't have otherwise thought of that helped us to move closer towards a, a, a solution that could be translated. What are some of the projects you're working on now? So one of the uh, um, projects that we've been working on is to develop a tissue glue um, that can seal tissues pretty much anywhere in the body and could be used during minimally invasive procedures inside a beating heart or on um, uh, gut tissue. So there was somebody in, in Bob Langer's lab who had developed a material um, around uh, the year 2000. When I got to the lab in 2004, um, I continued development on this material. And um, this ended up being uh, the material that's now um, about to enter clinical trials in Europe for vascular reconstruction. It's part of a company that I co-founded um, with Bob Langer um, and, and uh, some others uh, based in Paris. Um, a company's name is Gecko Biomedical, and it's a tissue adhesive glue that is um, relatively hydrophobic, so it repels um, blood or um, fluids away from a tissue surface. It then infiltrates into the tissue, and then you can cure it with light um, so it can attach to potentially any tissue in the body. And in fact, actually just uh, um, a couple months ago, we had the opportunity to use one of the versions of this material um, 
with a uh, a dog at Angel Memorial Hospital that had an oral nasal fistula, which is a hole um, from the oral cavity to the nasal cavity. And um, the head of the dental medicine at, at Angel Memorial had performed three surgeries um, to try to close this hole, but it was in the mouth of a bulldog. So there was a lot of tension and um, it, the, each surgery failed, um, three separate surgeries failed within two or three days. So we went in and put our material into this hole, um, and then pulled a tissue flap over top of it. Um, and, uh, this is one of our biodegradable, um, glues that also allows for cells to, to migrate on top of it and form new tissue. And anyhow, so it's been about two and a half months since we put in this glue and it's working, it, it worked. So, um, the dog had a really miserable life because of this hole that was getting infected. And now the dog is doing amazing. So, so that was, that was, you know, like a 15, 16 year process to get to that point. So I was looking at different projects on your website and the child safe battery stood out to me. Why this project? Batteries, in particular, these coin cell batteries or button batteries are extremely dangerous because children under the age of five or six um, are getting a hold of them and swallowing them, thinking that they're candy. And the problem is what happens is um, the battery can get lodged in the esophagus, so it gets stuck, and then it short circuits, and uh, and then the, uh, uh, the pH starts to rise. Um, because you get a current and it hydrolyzes the water, you get hydroxide ions that are produced, the pH rises and it can burn a hole into the esophagus. And so a lot of kids have died, dozens and dozens, dozens of kids in the United States have died from this and other places around the world. Um, the U S actually one of the few places in the world that actually has been tracking these, um, incidences for, um, for decades. And, um, and, and so it's been a made and, and, and you know, thousands of injuries kind of thing. So, um, I think every year there's somewhere like, uh, on the order of, uh, 3,500 or 4,000 cases of accidental ingestion of, uh, of these button or coin cell batteries that happen in the U S alone. And so what we did is we, um, notice that whenever you put these batteries into a device, there's always a spring that you have to push against. Um, and so what we realize is that the force is quite substantial of, um, putting a battery in, in a device. And, um, the, uh, I had a, a very talented postdoc in my lab, Brian Wallach, who had his, his PhD was focused on, um, understanding the forces that are imposed on pills that you swallow. And so we did some calculations to determine what would be the maximum force on a battery that would get lodged in the esophagus. And that force is much, much lower than the force of the spring that you, that you have to push against to get the battery into a device. And so we use that as design criteria um, to inspire a solution. Um, and we came up with a, a really simple coating that can go on the surface of a battery. And, um, and then it's pressure sensitive. So it's insulating. Um, so you literally can take the battery and put it into water or stomach acid for days and nothing happens. Um, but when you push on the coating, it gets converted to an efficient conductor. And so when the battery's in a device, the spring pushes on the coating and it acts as a normal battery, um, great conductor. But when the battery comes out of the device, even if it's swallowed, the force of the esophagus is not strong enough to convert into a conductor. So it remains insulating and waterproof. Um, and so now we're in the process of, 
um, working with the U.S. government, um, Poison Control, uh, Consumer Product Health and Safety Commission, starting to talk to some of the battery companies to try to figure out how we can bring this solution forward. And, you know, there's many patient safety advocacy groups that have been formed to uh, raise awareness. Every gastroenterologist knows about this problem. They've seen it. Um, you know, anyone who's working in emergency rooms see, sees this problem. Um, and so it's a, it's really a big problem and quite devastating, as you can imagine, for um, parents and, and, and family members. So we're, um, you know, really passionate to try to figure out how we can bring this forward to to stop these injuries from happening. Are there any new projects you're working on that you can tell us about? Yeah, we tend not to talk too much about projects that we haven't yet published on yet, um, because a lot of the work that we do ends up um, leading to, to patents. And, um, and so the idea is to advance a project as, as far as we can. Um, uh, keep a tight seal on it, and then uh, and then you know write write the paper, and then submit that as the patent. And then once that the patent goes out, then we um, submit the paper, and then we'll start presenting the work at conferences. There's a, a bunch of new projects that we've been working on. Um, one involves uh, a new needle that we've created um, that uh, automatically stops when it gets to the right location. And in particular, we've been looking at different compartments in the eye um, to, to use that for drug delivery applications. Um, and so we've been working on that for, for several years. We actually published on one of the designs um, back maybe uh, six or seven years ago, um, but we have a second generation and a third generation that we've been testing um, uh, that, that's um, uh, quite exciting. And... Um, We'll be submitting something on that shortly. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work with um, small molecules that can target stem cells in the body and progenitor cells to promote tissue regeneration. So it's it's this um, new concept of drug druggable tissue regeneration um, that we've been working on, um, and uh, and we've been looking at multiple tissues in the body, including in the gut um, and in the inner ear. Um, to try to regenerate uh, hair cells um, to treat hearing loss. We recently started a, a company called uh, Olivio Therapeutics, which was co-founded by myself and Bob Langer at MIT um, with PureTech Health, which is a local venture firm um, to translate a, an inflammation-responsive material that we developed in my lab um, that we showed in six different animal models um, could be useful for, for targeting different, different conditions. And so this is a material that responds to the biology. So when you put it into the body, um, if you have more inflammation, it releases more drug and with less inflammation releases less drug. So it's, um, biologically responsive. And we've been looking at using that to treat all kinds of conditions from inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, um, to arthritis, um, and, uh, and even different forms of cancer that we've been working on, uh, including prostate cancer and brain cancer. What do you like about clinical research and why do you do it? The reason that, um, you know, I think we're constantly excited about what we're doing is a combination of things. I think at the forefront, it's this incredible opportunity to make a difference, um, in the world, 
um, you know, have a, a positive impact uh, and improve quality of life of of patients and now even animals, as as we've learned through some of our most recent work. What also motivates us is just it's 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 so exciting to work together in a multidisciplinary manner to to have people with different expertise come together and and work on problems where we know that if we go about it the right way that our solutions could actually help people and and help them in the the short term next time on think research if you kind of look at the entire landscape of medicine people keep talking about miniaturizing and doing less invasive stuff this is probably other than maybe gallbladder surgery, probably the single biggest thing that I can think of off the top of my head where there's just been massive advances in terms of uh, the impact on patients, in terms of, of the morbidity they have from these procedures. Join us as we talk with Dr. Peter Steinberg about advancements in the treatment of kidney stones. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. research.